Good morning, everybody. He is risen. That's right. He is risen. Awesome. And he's here today with us in spirit and sound. Um, my name is Darren. I want to welcome everyone here. If you're new with us, uh, welcome to the garden. Uh, this is a, a special Sunday. It's uh, Resurrection Sunday, and normally I go through all the Bible verses dealing with rabbits and eggs, and I talk about how important all that stuff is, but not today. Not today. I, I got a couple of laughs. I never write jokes, really, but... Um, okay. It's, it's rumbling back here. So uh, today, what, 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 either, either this is the, the day we celebrate the biggest lie the world has ever known, or it's the biggest event in history that we've ever known, and we're celebrating here in a bar with a pool in the middle of a second floor nightclub. <laughs> I'm wearing boat shoes just in case it gets wet, and write that one down. <laughs> Oh. So, it's still, it's still f- doing something crazy, so if you guys can fix that, that would be awesome. So, today, this is what we're going to do. We're going to finish our series that we've been going through for the last year and a half. So, if you're new, catch up. I'll try to catch you up. No, I won't. Um, we're going to finish the Mark series. I'm going to tell a story of why we are why we have the audacity to make this a church, this nightclub into a church, and why we're baptizing and why we're celebrating on April 8th, 2012, the resurrected Messiah. So that's exciting. And lastly, we're going to do baptism. So that's going to be a fun time. And if you know me, you know I like two things at church, babies and baptisms. We did baby dedications a couple weeks ago, so that's why I like babies, okay? So let's, uh, let's just jump in. Are you with me with the story? I'm going to tell you a story. The story has five chapters or five acts, and uh, I'm going to go through all five. If, you're, if you need a seat, there's some seats here in the splash zone up in the front or up top in the VIP. A special welcome to the VIP section. So glad you're with us. <laughs> yeah. This is fun. I'm like having a blast. Okay, let me just jump in. Okay, um, chapter one of this five-part story I'm going to share. You're going to need a Bible when we get to chapter four. So stay with me. Chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created you and I and in his image. And the Bible says that after he created us, he says it's good. It was very good. We were made in the image of God. This means that the way we think, the way we feel, the way we make choices, the way we relate to one another, all of this has something to do with being made in the image of God. We were not products of randomness or chance. We were a product of divine intelligence and choice. And that means... uh, that whatever culture says, uh, whatever culture calls us, whatever you know, value we think we get from what we look like, how much money we get, or how successful you think we are, we have value way beyond that because we're made in the image of God. So, chapter one is this. You and I were created in the image of God, designed to live in perfect relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other, and all of creation. Chapter 1, perfect relationship with God, ourselves, each other, and all of creation. Chapter 2 of this story. 
Chapter 2 reveals that even though we were created in the image of God, or because we were created in the image of God, that comes with some responsibility. And that responsibility is the freedom of choice. That God gave us the freedom to say, yes, I will worship you or I'll worship something else. Or to say, I will serve you or I will serve something or someone else. That being made in the image of God came with free will. And it says in scripture early on that we used our free choice to, to worship something else other than God. And as soon as that happened, this thing called sin entered into the story in chapter 2. Sin and death entered in, and, and the, the corruption of the earth and all of the world began to take form, and, and sin entered into the story, and, and our natures were tainted by that. Our ability to discern what's good, what's right, our ability to choose perfection was missed. We missed the mark. That's the word for sin. The way we see things in the world has been distorted because of the corruption that comes from sin. We fell short. You see, we were designed for perfection, but we settled for brokenness. Because of that imperfection, we, there was distance created between us and God. And it's not hard to convince anyone of this. You don't even have to be Christian today to agree with me that all you have to do is look at the paper today and see how much corruption there is in the world. We, we protest injustice. We cry out against abuse. We know that there's pride, greed, gluttony, all the, thing, all the things in the world destroying this place. It's, that's not hard to convince you at all. We know that somewhere in the story, something went wrong. We sense it, we feel this, we get it. And the reason we get it is because we were designed to live in perfect harmony with the creator of the universe. But we settled for brokenness. That's chapter two. Moving right along, huh? It's going to be a quick sermon. Some of you are excited. Those of you that got, got dragged here by your relatives, God bless you for being here. So glad you're with us. Um, chapter 3 is this, we, re we read in the story of God that from the beginning, from the moment sin entered into the story, the moment brokenness separated us from God, God has been on a loving pursuit to redeem us. God has been on a, that's right, a loving pr pursuit to restore what was once perfect back to its perfection. To take what was broken and lost in chapter 2 and, and bring it back into right relationship with Him and wholeness. Not just people, but all of creation. This is the, the story of the Old Testament. Almost the entire Old Testament, half, more than half of our Bible is telling that story. That God is not some absentee landlord letting this world go to, some, to devastation, but He's intimately involved in pursuing the re rebuilding, the re restoration and reconstruction of this earth. We read that in Exodus, or in Genesis, God calls this guy named Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you, uh, your descendants, my people. In Exodus, he takes millions of people and says, if you will live the way I show you, in a way that reveals beauty and hope and peace and justice, if you'll live in a way that's uh, obedient to my commandments, then the world will know that there is a God. So God chose a people to be his people. So that the world, from the outside looking in, could say, there has to be a God. Look at what these people are doing. Look at how they love each other. Look at how they live. Look at the beauty bursting forth from this one community known as the Israelites. That's chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we know this by reading the Old Testament. What happens? Do they live in a, in a way that reveals God? Or do they live in a way that reveals chapter two's story? 
serving other gods, worshiping other gods other than God, the creator of the universe. They chose to follow the, the nature of sin. And so we see in chapter 3 that uh, this, the Old Testament promises that one day God would send a messenger, God would send a savior, a person that would fulfill all that was promised. That God would send someone that would show us, reveal to us what the life he was talking about looks like. In the Old Testament, there was promises of a coming Savior that would, would, would sort out the mess that was created in chapter 2. The Old Testament ends with unfulfilled promise. But chapter 3 leads us to chapter 4, where we'll spend most of our time today. Chapter 4 is this. We are here this morning because we are here to celebrate the Savior that was promised, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. We know him by the name Jesus of Nazareth. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth came to this earth feasting, teaching, healing, and claiming that God's way of life, the, the way of life that was found in chapter 1 of my story, is at your fingertips. He came onto the scene, a guy announcing that God's way, chapter 1, that story is available again right now. That yes, you might only see sin, destruction, despair, and brokenness, but a new life uh, that he called the kingdom of God, one that's marked by peace, by healing, by shalom, which is a Jewish word for harmony and wholeness, one that's marked by justice and righteousness, one that's marked not by addiction to substances, but of the Holy Spirit, one that's marked by healing, one that's marked by right relationship back with God, with ourselves with each other in the creation. That life is available now. It was outrageous. It was controversial. This, this 30-year-old rabbi from the middle of nowhere comes to the, the epicenter of religion and politics and has this message that's so controversial, nobody saw it coming. His message was, was blessed are the poor. Blessed are the weak, the hungry. God's favor rests on the worst kinds of people. His message was actually the best way to live is to turn, your other, turn the other cheek, to give to those who ask, to pray for those who persecute you, to go the second mile, to be the worst or the least of all, to be the, the greatest in the kingdom of God. His message got him killed. Then he starts hanging out with the kinds of people you would never, normal saviors and, and messiahs wouldn't hang out with these kind, kinds of people. They were the sinners, the tax collectors. They were the, the modern day drug dealers, the modern day terrorists. He says, you guys are my guys. You're my team. And the religious establishment couldn't handle it. The people that said who gets in and who gets out and who's blessed by God and who's not killed him. This is the story of chapter 4. And the last year and a half, we've been reading through the book of Mark uh, verse by verse. And the goal here has been just to, to remind ourselves of what Jesus' primary message was. was. And that, that his message was that this life is at our fingertips. The kingdom of God is available here and now for us today. Not someplace else, sometime else, but for us here and now. But we, we've went, we went through this book which tells us the, the life and ministry of Jesus, the book of Mark. And um, Mark writes this gospel as a, a history of what Jesus did and how he lived. And he writes it with the purpose of reminding the church 
of what it means to be his disciple. What does it mean when you say, I believe in Christ? What does that mean for our lives? Not sitting with a ticket waiting to go to heaven, but what does it mean for today, right now? That's what Mark was getting at. And so in order to do that, he tells a narrative story of Jesus' life, his ministry, his preaching, his teaching, his, his touching the untouchables, his, his healing the sick, his, his casting out demons. And we get to the end of this book, and that's where we are today. So grab a Bible, go to Mark 16. I want to finish us with the worst ending this book could ever see, or the most fascinating ending And if you like indie movies, you would love the Gospel of Mark, because I'm convinced that this is an indie ending. (laughs) It's a cliffhanger. It leaves you wanting more, wanting some resolution. The story arc isn't finished. And that's why Mark is so compelling. So we're going to answer this question, why does Mark end it this way? We're going to take a look at a couple of observations, and we're going to get to chapter 5 of my story, and we'll finish with baptisms. You with me? We doing good? Got some good food plans after this? I'm already thinking of lunch. I was up at like five. Okay, come on. Can I get a little more humor, like some laughing? I know I'm not that funny, but it's it, Jesus raised from the dead. Thank you. Just so you know, I do pay her every week, so it's so good. <laughs> Just kidding. She was like this when there was 10 of us in the room preaching. <laughs> Okay, Mark 16, I just want to reread this. It was so good when Jamie read this, but let's catch some of the humor here. When the Sabbath was over, the two Marys brought some spices um, so that they might go and anoint him. They're talking about Jesus. This is verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. Sabbath was the last day. They couldn't work that day. Sunday was the first day of the working week for the Jewish community. They had been uh, saying to one another, I'm sorry, on the first day of the early week, When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered in the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed or afraid. But he said, Hey, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified, but he's been raised. He's not here. Look, there's the place he was laid, but go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you in Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for they were were terrified and amazed. Amazement has seized, seized them, excuse me. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. The end of the book of Mark. And your, your Bible might have some additional endings. It does, doesn't it? It has two alternate endings. Just like an indie movie. <laughs> Is this the, the original manuscript, the oldest manuscript we have of this book, ends right there. And scholars for centuries have debated if we're missing the ending. And the church was so frustrated that they added on to it. They're like, it can't end this way. Let's get, let's get Jesus doing some cool stuff, casting out stuff, you know, let's commission, like all the other gospels, which is true. It's just a different story, and there's a reason why Mark does it this way. It's interesting. Why does he end it like this? 
I believe that Mark, with all intentionality, ended his book this way for a reason, and we'll get to that answer. But before that, let me just look at this story real quick, some observations about um, the women that see what goes on, um, about the story itself and the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection today. So women, first of all, these women are listed in chapter 15 uh, as they were at the crucifixion. These women saw Jesus be killed by professional Roman killers. They watched him die, and they watched him get buried in the tomb, according to the scripture in this account. So these women watched Jesus get killed and buried, and they're picking up spices to go to the tomb, not to witness a resurrection. They had no idea that was coming, even though Jesus told them. One thing that's fascinating is that the way that all the resurrection stories are told, it's not told as a historical explanation. It's told as a puzzle that needs to find a solution. I'll get to that in a second. But I want to focus on this story. The women go to the tomb with spices to complete the task, the sad task of burying their dead Messiah. The spices were used to put on the dead body to keep the smell down from the decomposing body. That's what they were doing. They're going to rub spices on this dead, beaten body. Why were they keeping the smell down? Well, he was in an expensive tomb. And that tomb wasn't just meant for him. It was from Joseph of Arimathea and all of his family. So in other words, he was a wealthy guy that had purchased the tomb. And soon enough, after he or his family members began to die, those bodies would go in the same tomb that Jesus was supposed to be in. This is what's going on in the story. And they're walking to the tomb knowing that he's been buried, wondering how on earth they're going to move the stone. Do you see how silly this is? It's like, da-da-da-da-da, don't-don't, oh, the stone's moved away. And then they get there, and there's this calm angel sitting there, or a guy in white just saying, oh, by the way, he's been raised from the dead, just like he told you, go on your way, tell everyone else. And they don't say anything. Does anyone else find this ending really weird? A couple of thoughts, first of all. If you are making up this story in the first century, you would never use the testimony of women as your first reliable source of the resurrection. Let me explain some things. There's a Greek philosopher named Celsus that wrote in the second century. He antagonized Christianity. And he had many writings and he was arguing against Christianity. And one of his biggest arguments was this. Christianity can't be true because it, the written accounts of the resurrection are best... Are, are, excuse me, are based on the testimony of women. And I quote, and we all know that women are hysterical, end quote. <laughs> this, is, this is absolutely fact that in the first century in ancient culture, women were marginalized. Their testimonies were not even legal in court. But every synoptic gospel has the women seeing the resurrected Jesus first. If you were making it up, you wouldn't tell that part of the story. Another observation, the empty tomb. I said this, but the book of Mark, the resurrection isn't presented as a historical explanation, but rather a puzzle in search of a solution. Let me, let me make sure that you understand this, because this is, this is gripping. The disciples could not even conceive of Jesus being raised from the dead. They would have had a hard time of believing in the resurrection as much as we would have had a hard time believing in the resurrection today. 
For the Greek, the Greeks, I mean, think about this. Their view of the afterlife is that when you die, your soul departs from your physical body. So the fact that some guy resurrects from the dead and afterlife is physical, it just blows their mind. To the Jewish community, check this out. They believed in the resurrection, but not in a million years that one person in the middle of time would be raised from the dead. They, their concept of the resurrection was that one day when God comes back and restores all, thing, one, all things once and for all, everyone will be raised from the dead at the same time. It's, it's, it's as if Jesus surprises them and the disciples don't see it coming. They're not, the story then makes it even more compelling because the empty tomb is evidence. And the solution is, well, he must have been raised from the dead. Are you with me? If there's an empty tomb, either he, his body was stolen or he's been raised from the dead. And Mark's going to make you have a, answer that question. Mark's going to make you answer that question. We'll get to that later. So, two points. You know, if you're making this up, one, you have to realize in the first century you'd never use the testimony of women. Two, if, if you were making this up, you have to know how original this idea was. No one in a million years would anticipate one person being raised from the dead. Are you with me? It must be either historically accurate or false. Okay. You guys with me? Did I confuse any of you? Just one person in the back. Thanks for being honest. Okay. A couple of observations I want to talk about with the implications of the resurrection that we can take on from today. First of all, number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is physical. He had a physical body. We're not talking about a disembodied afterlife, okay? We're talking about Jesus having a transformed physical body on this planet Earth here 2,000 years ago. In the Gospel of Luke and John, uh, we see Jesus walking, talking, looking, touching, eating food, breaking bread. It's not just spiritual, it's physical. It's here and now. Jesus is not the Casper, the friendly dead Messiah that raised back in the spirit. Yes. So good. Thank you. More, Lord. <laughs> I'm just so pathetic, huh? I'm just starving, starving for it. Um, so, are you with me on that? The, the resurrection's physical. This has massive implications for us today. Second, the resurrection changes the way the world works. Would you agree? Would you agree that it's our general human experience that when somebody dies, they stay dead? Right? That uh, in our experience, people, when they die, they stay dead. But here we are. The foundation of our Christian belief is that Jesus died and he's not dead anymore. That, that the way the world works is that when people die, they stay dead. But Jesus died and he's no longer dead. He's living. What does that mean for us today? Most of us are solid on the fact that when you die, you stay dead. But in the story of the resurrection, the disciples don't even see it coming. So the resurrection begins to open up a whole new set of possibilities. Would you agree? It begin, you begin to understand that the, the world might work differently than what we thought. The resurrection begins to bring a whole new set of provocative questions. Some like, if death is no longer an issue, then what else might be possible? 
in this place called earth in 2012. If death is normally how somebody, how, if death is normally how it ends, yet Jesus is alive again, what does that mean for us today? If the worst thing that you could possibly throw at somebody, you could throw at somebody is death, and Jesus defeats that, what does that mean for us today? These are just some of the questions I've been having. I'm just bringing you into my curiosity. He must be telling the truth. For those of us that have been here for a couple of years, think of the last year and a half of messages that we've taught. He must be telling the truth. Jesus must really be the Son of God. Jesus must really be the one true king. He must really be the Messiah. He must really bring a new kingdom, a new way of life. This life of justice, beauty, peace, hope, all that being at our fingertips, all that business that we talk about, that must be real. If the truth we believed in is that when you die, you stay dead, and all of a sudden that changed, do we begin to see that the resurrection brings a whole new dimension to life? That Easter is simply the beginning of a whole new project. A whole new reality. The resurrection doesn't mean everything's alright, we're going to go to heaven now. Let's just wait here until we get to go. It doesn't mean, it means that heaven has been born on earth. Let me say that again. I think this is such a huge illusion in our Christian churches today. The resurrection doesn't mean everything's okay. Now we get to go to heaven. Let's just wait till that happens. It means that heaven has been born on earth through Jesus' death and resurrection. It doesn't just simply mean that there's life after death. It means so much more than that. Are you with me? Mark ends his book of Jesus teaching, healing demons, casting out all these things, bringing peace, hope, love, joy, bringing this provocative message. Then Jesus dies, he raises from the dead, and all we know is he's on his way to Galilee. The end. What? I mean, leading up to his death, there's so many details, and then Mark just ends it, and you're like, now what? He leaves it unfinished. The characters haven't been restored. The, the story isn't complete. Mark is frustrating us. Why does Mark do this? Why does it end here in Mark 16? Because Easter is simply the beginning. Jesus is just getting warmed up. Mark ends this because he knows the story is going to continue. And it's going to continue through those who know Jesus. So let me recap real fast and we'll land in chapter 5. Chapter 1 is this. You and I were made in the image of God, but we were designed for right relationship with our Creator, with ourselves, with others in all creation. Chapter 2 reveals that something went terribly wrong. We are separated from God and we settled from perfection to brokenness. Chapter 3 reveals that God's not going to leave it alone. He didn't leave earth on its destructive path. He enters into the story wanting to redeem all that was lost. Chapter 4, God sends His Son to, which is the Savior to redeem all that was lost and with it bring hope and redemption. And here comes chapter 5. 
The end of Mark's gospel enters in a whole new story. And chapter 5 is about you and it's about me. What will you do with an empty tomb? What will you do with the resources of heaven at your fingertips? What will you do in God's new world that's burst forth 2,000 years ago when Jesus was raised from the dead? What are you going to do now? Christianity for far too long has said Christianity is about believing in some distant God someplace else, holding on to a ticket in heaven saying that one day we'll get our act cleaned up. One day things are going to get better. If we just believe in the right doctrine, if we just hope that good things happen, sometime, someplace else, good things are going to happen. But the gospel isn't that. The gospel is this, the life that God intended us to have. Full of beauty, full of hope, full of favor, love, gentleness, and joy, and justice. That is moving. It's growing here, right here in Cohiba, in Long Beach, in your neighborhoods. It's, it's coming and it's breaking through full of life. And the question is, this has been available for us. Will you go forth and write chapter 5? Chapter 5 hasn't been written yet. Mark's expectation is that the disciples will know what to do with the ending. The resurrection simply means roll up your sleeves. We've got some work to do. The resurrection means go spread this life around here on earth. It's not just about telling people about Jesus. It's showing them Jesus. The resurrection means that we actually can change this place with the power of heaven. It means that life can be restored. It means that you can be healed today. That children can be raised up to love and not hate. That gardens can be planted and neighbors can be formed. And neighborhoods can be restored. We can pray for peace. And it can happen with those of us that take seriously the call to take this message further. The resurrection is so practical. It means that your marriage can work out when you have no hope. If death is not an issue, then there's some hope for your, your marriage. It means that your addiction, however big it is, however bad it is, it's, it can be healed. It means that you can move mountains and it means that you don't have to wait anymore. Chapter 5 is not finished. We get to write it. We get to tell this part of the story. Easter Sunday is not about Sunday. It's about Monday. It's about what you're going to do tomorrow. We can get all caught up in the hype of one celebration, one Sunday service, but it's not about Sunday. It's about the coffee conversations. It's about the way you treat your spouse. It's about the intentionality of meeting your neighbors. It's about spreading the good news through acts of kindness that nobody knows about. That is the resurrection. And we deny it every time we refuse to participate in those small acts of love. You with me? The resurrection isn't about going someplace else. It's about life being born here and transformation here. And this is what we call good news as Christians. So where do you find yourself in the story I've just shared? Five chapters. Where are you? Where are you? 
Some of you need to sit in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is that God came to you in your weakness, in your brokenness, and loved you despite yourself. He came into your depression, your anxiety, your fears, your broken relationships, your isolation, your body image issues, your eating disorders, your anger, your hatred, your lust, your addictions. He came into all of that and made a way for you to be in right relationship with yourself, with others, and in Him. He offers you wholeness, acceptance, and forgiveness. Chapter 4, at the heart of it, says that whatever you think you are, whatever labels you've accepted over time, whatever value you think you have, whatever you've done in this life to whoever you've done it to, however you've participated in the destruction of this place, whatever junk you carried in here this morning, whatever track record you have, whatever you think society says about you, all of that stuff no longer has to define you. Because if death isn't an issue, then that isn't either. Some of you sit right there. Sit right there in the crazy love that God has for you. That you are good enough as you are. You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to clean yourself up. Jesus does it for you. Some of us, probably lots of us, have to wake up to chapter 5. We've adopted that Christianity of waiting for something else to happen. And God's waiting on us to resource us with the transformative power of heaven to change the world around us. This is how Christianity became a movement. Because people got chapter 5. So this morning my question for you is, what are you going to do with an empty tomb? And where are you in the story this Sunday? Resurrection Sunday. Cool? Okay, we're going to do some baptisms. Now, um, we have a really expensive pool. And you wouldn't understand the physics or the mechanics involved in this. Um, It involves some duct tape and some tarps and lots of prayer. Uh, This is a very risky thing to do on a second floor. You can come up. We'll get the worship team up here. I have a few more things to share before we jump into this. I want to, I want to share. So baptism for us, uh, the word means to immerse somebody in water, and it has just significant symbolism attached. So in Romans, Paul talks about baptism as joining Jesus in his death and joining Jesus in his resurrection. What does that mean? Well, it just means this, that in Christ, our old self, our old ways, our old patterns of behavior, our destructive ways of the past found in chapter 2 of the story, that um, when we go into the water, we participate in that dying. That that old self is killed on the cross with Jesus. And that through the power of God, when we come out of the water, it's a symbol of God working in us and giving us new life. He calls it new creation in Second Corinthians. When we come out of the water, we're symbolized as a new creation, a new self. We don't believe that this process saves you at all. It's an outward display of an inward reality. That's it. And it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's like, uh, it's a symbol like it is my wedding ring. Um, to you, it doesn't mean anything. Unless you're a girl that wants to hit on me, it means something then. Because I'm taken. I've got a lady. And I wanted it, and I put a ring on it. And... <laughs> so good 
<laughs> it's a big deal. <laughs> uh, so this is a big deal. And uh, so we have some, a few people, a couple of folks that are going to get baptized. It's going to be awesome. Um, this is a time to pull out your cameras, take pictures. We're going to worship. Um, it's going to be an awesome experience. But uh, as I look around the room, some of you wore your Easter's best. Others, not so much. But it's, you're, you're all welcome here anyways. No, I'm just kidding. But um, you wouldn't believe the amount of pain and suffering that's in this room. I mean, if we just took off those pastel-colored shirts and the, not literally, but the smiles, we would see so much pain. Abuse, probably, substance abuse, lost jobs, lack of hope, despair, addictions, things that we don't want to talk about with other people. And uh, this morning, for some of you, might be uh, a fresh start. It might just be a symbol of a new beginning. And guess what? God loves, and he's got plenty of new beginnings for you. So uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to baptize. And I want to I give some of you the opportunity to respond. So let's just close our eyes. We'll pray. And then if, if, you, uh, if you have a desire to be baptized and you haven't been baptized, we have some extra shirts and towels, and we would love to baptize you this morning. So we're going to have a couple of songs and then some people are going to start getting baptized. And if, if you want to be baptized this morning, we have some people that are going to stand over here that will pray with you, talk to you, and then feel free to get in your Easter's best into this pool. It's so much cooler when you're wet than you are dry. So um, we're going to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you didn't bring a religion or a list of to-dos, but that you are a loving God. And that the good news is that you don't just come to save us and bring us to heaven, but that you come to transform our life now. That the, it's not a pie in the sky, but it's a loving God who embraces us where we are here and now. Thank you, Jesus, that you come today, still today, to resurrect dead things, to bring new life. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that are in desperate need of new life. Lord, we just invite your spirit to move as we celebrate and worship to minister to us. And just while we're praying, some of you might just need some um, help maybe praying to God and I want to do that if you're here and it's been a while or maybe you've never even prayed out to God and you have a desire for that maybe just repeat after me um, Lord Jesus I don't know what all of this means but I want to believe and I want to begin a journey thank you for bringing new life and dying for me so that I might be whole again and I accept you as my Lord and my Savior and I pray that your spirit would fill me. And I pray this in your name. Amen.